God's Word. And as I mentioned, we're early on in a series about the Ten Commandments, so we're in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow the passage in the bulletin there. If you, uh, if you are visiting and weren't here last week, or maybe you were away, we looked at the first commandment. And the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And we asked the question last week, and I just alluded to this a little while ago, when God says that, why is he not an egomaniac? You know, if we have a friend or an acquaintance who doesn't want anybody else to be your best friend but them, or you can't talk to anybody but them, or don't love anybody like you love me, unless that's your spouse, uh, then we say that that person is insecure. We say that person might be an egomaniac, especially if they want everybody to consider them to be their best friends. But God comes along and says, don't worship anybody but me. So why is he not one? Now, we looked at that question last week. That was implicit last week, but it, there's language in this second commandment that we're about to read that almost makes it explicit. In other words, God is going to use... He's going to describe himself in terms of a quality that he possesses. And when we possess it, it's an imperfection. And for him, it's part of his perfection. Let me say that again. In this, in this second commandment, God doesn't just give the command, but he's going to describe himself in terms of a quality that when we possess it, it's an imperfection. For him, it's a perfection. Now, how is that? And what is it? Exodus 20, beginning in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we are gathered up here together, for corporate worship, collective worship, public worship. We would join our voice with the psalmist who asked, let us behold wonderful things from your law. And that's our prayer right now. We pray, just even on the heels of what we just sang about, that in casting down idols, in embracing you, that, we, that you would show us wonderful things from your law. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, with every passing year, I'm getting more nervous about referring to TV shows that I grew up watching because I feel like it connects with less and less people in the room. So I may be straining you at this point when I refer to uh, an episode of Good Times. I don't know if you grew up watching the show. I grew up watching reruns of uh, Good Times. This was a syndicated show, I guess 1970s. Set in Chicago in the projects, the Evans family, um, 
and uh, you know their life is hard for them, but they're trying to be a family and keep it together. And uh, there's an episode I, just, I remembered it distinctly, and I looked it up on YouTube, and, it, and ah, how it came back to me. Um, their oldest son, this real string bean guy, is JJ Evans, and JJ is an aspiring artist. And one day, he he, uh, he finished a painting of Jesus. But the painting is of an African-American Jesus. And it's very, it's very different looking than the traditional Jesus. And so he puts it up on a wall in their home, in this apartment. And after he hangs it up, all these great things start to happen in the Evans household. You know, like just some breaks they normally wouldn't get. These breaks come their way. Or, uh, you know, money they wouldn't normally get. Money just sort of shows up. And it corresponds so closely to the appearing of this painting that they begin to connect the two. And it's very troubling to the mom. I I should have looked this up. I think she's Gloria Evans. And uh, it's very troubling to her because where this painting is, where they put it on the wall, is next to a place of honor where she already had a picture of Jesus. Now, the picture of Jesus that she had there is the picture that when I say a picture of Jesus that all of you just thought of. That that picture is it, that's, it's a known painting. It's by an artist named Warner Salmon, and it's called Head of Christ. It is far and away, without debate, the most common American image of Jesus. Slam dunk, not even a close second. So that was already up on the wall, and she's very troubled that this different-looking picture of Jesus is put up there because uh, you know he has white hair instead of dark hair. And, he just, and, and uh, he just looks different. Well, the youngest son in the family, Michael, says, Mama, Mama, but look at this. And he goes over and he gets the family Bible. And he opens it to Revelation. And he reads a description of Jesus from Revelation. And what the text says is that, you know, his hair is white. And in, now, his hair is not white in the traditional painting. But it is white in the new one that J.J. painted. And his eyes are fiery, it says in the text. And, and the eyes in that painting are fiery. And she says, give me that. You're like, you know, it doesn't say that. And she reads it. And it does say that. It's very jarring to her because that was Jesus. All right, now tuck that away. We're going to revisit that. Think about this. Um, I think most of you have seen this book before. The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. There's going to be an adaptation of this at the Warehouse Theater next month, a little advanced blurb. Uh, the Screwtape Letters is fictional letters from an older demon named Screwtape to his nephew, Wormwood. And he's writing him about how to work with your patient. And the patient is the man that he's trying to spiritually ruin. And so Uncle Screwtape's walking him through it. Now listen to what he says in one of his letters. This is letter number four. He's talking about, you know, your patient, when he thinks about God, he has this composite in his mind. All your patients will do this. And they kind of draw from here, they draw from there, they draw from paintings they've seen, maybe from Sunday school lessons, maybe from a verse they know about, and just from personal preferences. And they cobble those together, it's kind of a composite, and to your patient, that's God. Now here's what Screwtape says. I've known cases where what the patient called his God was actually located 
meaning the composite actually occupies a spot. It says, up and to the left at the corner of the bedroom ceiling, or inside his own head, or in a crucifix on the wall. But whatever the nature of the composite object, you must keep him praying to it, to the thing that he has made, not to the person who has made him. Now, you know, the first example, J.J. and the two competing paintings, you know, it's kind of funny. Again, we'll kind of revisit that. Um, But that is unnerving to me. It's unnerving to me because it's, it's the picture of demons delighting in human beings like us, the patients, crafting a God that we worship. Not another God, but like the biblical God, but all the crafting is immaterial. That the crafting is internal. Now that is exactly what this commandment is getting at. That is exactly what is in our hearts that this commandment addresses. You know, as I looked at th- as I looked at this for this week, I began to ask myself: Is the second commandment redundant? Meaning that last week we looked at, "You shall have no other gods before me." Therefore, don't worship idols, don't make idols, don't use somebody else's idols, avoid idols. Okay, so that's established in the first commandment, and then you get the second commandment, and it says what? Don't carve any images. I thought you already established that in the first commandment. And here's what I want you to think about. Exactly. Exactly. That was established in the first commandment. So what does this mean? The two do overlap. There's definitely kind of like a Venn diagram. But what is the crafting? What's the carving that's being addressed here? It's not so much to craft an idol, is to craft God. In other words, it's not to craft a God that's another option from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's to try to craft the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To get Him to be the way we want Him to be. You know, he says that your patient's going to have a composite. We all have composites. They're drawn from preferences, And from upbringing, it might be drawn from what your dad was like, or art, or movies, or Bible verses, and they're cobbled together. And when we think about God, that is what we think about. That's a crafting. God says, don't do that. Why does he say that? And really, the insight here is is not just the command, but it's what God says about himself after the command. The command is verse 4. But what did he say in verse 5 about himself? I, the Lord your God, am what? I'm a jealous God. And what does that mean? Because if we, if we don't get this, we're going to think that God is just the all-powerful dictator. And since he holds all the cards and has all the power, then he says, don't like anybody more than me. Is that what he's doing? Is God needy? I mean, we sometimes talk about Him as if He is, that, you know, God made the universe, there's all these great planets, there's all these great stars, and then He was lonely, and then He made us. God has never been lonely. 
As long as there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is no loneliness within God. And there's never been any breaches in that circle of relationships except for a few hours one Friday. He has no need. He doesn't need us to like Him back, thankfully, or oh, how His needs would go unmet. Then why is He jealous? And we talked about this last week, is that what would be the most loving thing for someone to want for you? The most loving thing they could want for you would be that you always had the source of all the truth and the source of all the goodness and the source of all the beauty. And that source would never be taken away from you. You'd always have it. That would be the most loving wish anybody could have for you. That's exactly what God wants for us. Well, who is the source of all the truth and beauty and goodness? He is. God not only is the center of God's own existence, but God is to be the center of our existence, not because He's a dictator. If God was a dictator, we would feel it. But because He loves us, He is jealous as an extension of His love. I don't want you to run after other gods that will devastate you. I don't want you to, whether that's a statue in a shrine or your need for approval or your need to be noticed as the best worker in your business, they will crush you and take your life. I want you to have me. I will give you life. Don't go after those other gods. But here's the thing. If you're really going to have me as me, don't reshape me. I want you to have me as I actually am. So let's look at this. What is this first off, what is this command addressing? What, what is it that we want to do that this commandment is addressing? And then how do we change? And first off, what's the command addressing? A couple of things about us. First off, we want to set the terms for worship. And the second thing is we want to set the terms for His identity. We want to set the terms for His worship, and we want to set the terms for His identity. Now, what do we mean by that? But when you, when you look in Old Testament history, it was a perennial problem. I mean, perennial, major, spiritual problem of God's people in Israel, that they worshipped idols. But here's the amazing thing. Sometimes they worshipped idols that were clearly other gods. You know, Baal. Molech, Asherah, some other god. But sometimes they worshipped objects and said, that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That object is our God. That's Yahweh right there. And God disciplined His people severely for that. We get to the New Testament era, and that problem goes away, Right? Right? Can I tell you a little church history? Now, don't tune me out, because I'm actually going to talk about medieval church history. How to put people to sleep, number 37. <laughs> talk about medieval church history. But this is good to hear, because sometimes I think we think that nothing happened like in between 100 A.D. and Martin Luther. And a bunch of stuff happened in between those two things. Uh, in the 700s, let me back up. 
You've probably heard of the Apostles' Creed. The second best-known Christian creed is the Nicene Creed. And the material of that creed was hammered out at this big church meeting in Nicaea in the 300s. There was a second big church meeting in Nicaea in the 700s. It's the second council of Nicaea. And one reason that it's very well-known in church history is a ban was lifted at that meeting. And you know what the ban was? Pictures and images and statues of God, Jesus, and saints. Now, I want to read this to you because I want you, because you can hear that and think, well, boy, they blew it. But listen to how this group of Christians expressed themselves. They said this, the images of Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, the holy angels, as well as those of the saints and other pious and holy men should be embodied in the manufacture of sacred vessels, tapestries, vestments, etc., and exhibited on the walls of churches, in the homes, and in all conspicuous places, by the roadside, and everywhere, to be revered by all who might see them. Now, listen. Here's why they said you should do this. The more that those are contemplated, the more they move to fervent memory their prototypes. Meaning, if you're looking at a statue of Jesus and you really contemplate what it's about... What's that going to do? It's going to move your heart toward the real Jesus, which is what we want. Therefore, it is proper to accord to them a fervent and reverent adoration. Not, however, the worship which according to our faith belongs to the divine being alone. Now, here's the thing. What did they do right? What did they do right? What they did right was to say... There is a worship that's due to God alone, and we want people to have that worship, that regard for God and Jesus Christ. What did they do wrong? They misjudged our hearts. They said this, if you get somebody to think about, especially somebody that can't read. There's illiteracy around the world. There always has been. Get people to look at the image, the painting, the mural, the statue, and if they contemplate that, ah, then it's going to take them to the real thing. The statue of Jesus will make them think about the real, the real Jesus. And He's who deserves worship. Don't worship that statue. Just worship Jesus. You can revere the statue. That's what we call a distinction without a difference. Because in the human heart, if you say, hey, this thing should make you think about God, but don't worship that thing. Only worship God, but use this thing to help you. Worship God and see Him. And like, this kind of will make you think about what He looks like. Our human hearts just can't help but bleed those into one thing. And that is not a new problem. That is as old as humanity itself. I'm going to talk about that even in regard to Jesus in a second. We want to craft our worship. Even if God says, don't do this, it's our thought to say, but it could help so many people. What's the appeal of a visible image? And th this really gets into who we are. It's that w what we really want to do is craft his identity. We want to set the terms for who he actually is. You know what's great about a visible depiction? Well, a couple of things. One is we're physical. And if you're really sad, or if God really feels distant, 
or you're brokenhearted, or you're going through great suffering, there is something seemingly comforting about going to a statue or a picture or a painting or even a place or a locale and just physically placing yourself there that's comforting to physical beings in the short run. But you know what it really does? What it really does is it takes away the tensions. It lets your mind not have to deal with tensions that the Bible makes us deal with. What do I mean by that? Um, let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, we came to the ninth anniversary of September 11th, right? So lots of footage from September 11th. And it, it, it doesn't cease to amaze me every year. It pulls me in. That I, it's just a one-of-a-kind experience in our lives, right? And when you see the footage of those towers come down, and you see people literally running for their lives from a storm cloud that's chasing them down the streets of Manhattan. No one's ever seen anything like this in the United States. All right, now, you have that image in your mind. Think about this verse. This is just one part of one verse from Amos. Old Testament, kind of obscure. It says this, Has disaster come to a city and the Lord has not done it? It's just an open-ended question. Any nation, any culture, any time, look at any massive disaster that comes to a city and the prophet asks a rhetorical question. Did the Lord do that or not? And the answer is yes. And I think it's our tendency to want to say, well, maybe it just means, I don't know, that he allowed... It doesn't say he allowed it. It says he did it. Now, that is extremely jarring. And that kind of jarring takes place all through the Scriptures. I've been a Christian now, as best I know, for 27 years. And I, there's a part of me that gets tired of being jostled. You know, I just want things to be one way or the other. Either be big and powerful and frightening and punish sin, or be so kind and generous that no one has to be afraid. Either say, be afraid or don't be afraid. And God says, yes. Yes. It's Old Testament, it's New Testament. You know, John 3.16, one of the most famous passages in the Bible. God so loved the world, not just loved, so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. The Gospel, good news, one verse. Two verses later, what does it say? It's warning about the wrath of God. And that chapter ends saying, if you have the Son, you have life, the Son of God. If you have Him, you have life. If you do not have the Son, God's wrath remains on you. Chapter 4. And we want it to be one way or the other. But let me give you an example. Think about... This right here. Look in your bulletin, if you don't mind, at the next page. Just turn to the next page. Every page in our order of worship changes every week, except this one. And the reason is that we do this every week, except next week. 
This may not be a timely illustration on my part. <clears throat> but we do this every week in our worship. And we, we want there to be, for, for the person who's never done this or who's coming in for the first time, to have some kind of guidelines about why we do this. What does it mean? What should I do? Now, look at the second item on that page. Out of, I hope, love, we quote from the New Testament. And what does it say? Here's a note about partaking. Quote, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now that is in print every single week. And that's verbally reinforced when the supper is served. And I know for a fact that we have had visitors who did not come back because of that. But who are you to say that some people should have this and some should not? It should be open to anyone. I, I know that for a fact, and, I, and I've also heard this from some of you. I don't. How can I bring a friend who's not a convinced Christian already if that's going to be in the bulletin and you're going to stand there and say... This table is only for those who've been baptized and repented and believed in Jesus Christ. How can you do that? Let me be the first to tell you, it would be so much more convenient for me to say, you're right, you're right. But do you know why that would be so much easier for me? Is because I don't like conflict. And I don't want anybody to visit and then not come back. I don't know where we would meet if that happened. But I want everybody to stay. I want, I want everyone to love it. And really, what is going on inside of me, is, and I think some of us, is to say this. Okay, look, I know you say that, but if we do this, it's more inclusive. If we do this, it sends the right signals. It's more generous. And really what we're saying is, God, be this way instead of how you say you are. That's crafting. We want to set the terms for the worship and we want to set the terms for what He is like. How do we change? How, how can we change? We want an image. And you know, you know what the amazing thing is? There, there was a perfect image of God. You know what it was? We were. We were the perfect image of God at the beginning. And we fell. And the image was tainted. And now the image bears physical... We're not just souls. We're souls and bodies. I want an image to look at. Has God provided one that's okay? What was our call to worship? How did the service begin this morning? Colossians 1. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. God does have an image that it's, is okay to worship and bow down before. It's Jesus Christ. But you know what? We can even take that and twist it. Um, okay, back to good times. I mentioned that you've got the painting by J.J. 
And Mama Evans doesn't like it being there because it's next to the, the place where she had the traditional picture of Jesus. That traditional picture of Jesus is a painting by Warner Solomon called Head of Christ. Again, when you mentally picture Jesus, you picture this guy. It's a headshot. It's like a studio portrait. Light coming up from the bottom, chestnut hair, white guy, um, real neatly trimmed beard, like Pantene shiny hair. Um, now, there's problems with that. On okay, One problem with that is, think about it this way. If you watched Lost, I know not everybody did. When we think of Jesus, we tend to think of someone who looks like Sawyer. Okay, would Jesus look more like Sawyer or Saeed? Food for thought. All right, but the, the picture of Jesus, there's a guy that, that chairs the religion department at Boston University. He wrote a book called American Jesus, How the Son of God Became a National Icon talking about how Americans have used depictions of Jesus in very American ways. And he talks a lot about this painting by Warner Solomon. And he made a great point. He said, you know, what's, you know what Americans seized on with the headshot? Traditionally in Christian art, you usually found Jesus in art in, in two settings. Either his infancy with Mary or the crucifixion. And, and both of those push you toward particular Christian doctrines. Even, no matter what the painting is, you, you, it's based in biblical doctrines. But when you've just got a studio kind of portrait headshot, you can take that image of a man and you can impose on him whatever you want. Your preferences, your likes and dislikes. And even if you don't have that image in your house, even if you would say, no, that's not what he looked like. He was Eastern. That's a white guy. Of course he didn't look like that. Even if you know that, isn't that going on inside of all of us? Think about this. What? This is going to sound like a crazy question, but hear me out. What do you call Jesus? If you refer to him, how do you refer to him? Do you only call him Jesus? Or do you ever call him Christ? Or Jesus Christ? You may be thinking, this is the biggest, like, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. I, the main thing is to believe in... I, I agree. The main thing is to believe in Jesus. But if you only... If we only call Jesus Jesus, you know what that might come from? is that we have a mental picture of him where we have frozen him what he was like on earth in his humiliation. This was his humiliation. And that we don't think in terms of who he, what he's like now in his exaltation. You know, when Michael Evans comes up to his mama and he reads from Revelation, that's why it's so jarring, is the description is not like the Warner Solomon painting he glows and his, his hair is white and his eyes are like fire. And it turns out that's because J.J. used a wino as the model, Ned the wino. That's why his eyes are red like fire. And that was troublesome to Mrs. Evans. But one of the reasons that we need the book of Revelation is if we only had the Gospels, it would be our tendency to just lock in a mental picture of a Jewish peasant. 
whom we can manage and who will be like what we like and will not be like what we don't like. And you open Revelation and you've got John. He's one of Jesus' closest friends. He's not just one of the twelve apostles. He's so close that John, at a meal, would lie with his head on Jesus' chest. And I have close, 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 close best friends, but to me that's just like, yee. Like if we go to a movie together, empty seat in between us, okay? Just clear lines. Not between Jesus and John. Very close. Dear friends. And John sees the risen Christ. Now, who rose? It's his best friend. But when he sees him, it terrified him. And he fell down as though dead. And the irony is, it's the risen Christ who bends down and touches him and says, Don't be afraid. And isn't that the biblical motif over and over and over? The frightening God saying, Don't be afraid. And we're saying, of course I'm afraid. But he's saying, I've made provision so you don't have to be. What is he to us? Helper? Buddy? Uh, Validation of my preferences? Or is he prophet and priest and king, Christ, shepherd, brother, friend, Lion, lamb. How are you going to have a real picture of Jesus? I want to end with this. Look at Deuteronomy 4. This is right before... I've just worked you on this bulletin this morning, so thanks for hanging in there. This is right before the people are going to cross the Jordan River. And look at what Moses says, because this has everything to do with what we're talking about. You're going to go across this river. You're going to go in this land. And he says, only take care. Keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. And lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, Sinai, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And get this. And you came near... You stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. When those people were at the foot of Mount Sinai and it rumbled, The rumbled was not the talking. It was the backdrop. But they had His words. Don't worship statues of other gods. Don't worship a statue of me. You have my words. Guys, why do we need the Scriptures? Why does it need to be preached? Why do we need to talk about it in community groups? Why why do we need to read it? Because we have hearts that even if we say, yeah, I believe in the biblical God, we will take that and craft it 
into the way we want Him to be. And the Scriptures are His love to say, I'm not like all your preferences. I am who I am. I am who I am. And the only way to really see the fullness of that and keep it together as we're jostled back and forth is Jesus. He's on that cross undergoing the wrath of God because God is a God of wrath. And He is up there instead of me because God is love. But it all comes together in a man named Jesus Christ. But don't we still want something we can touch? Don't we still want something we can see? Don't you? I mean, yeah, okay, I I shouldn't have a statue, but I still kind of want something I can touch. He loves us so much. He is so gracious that He gave us things that we can touch. Don't ever worship this table. Don't ever worship the bread or the cup. There's no need when you walk in to touch or genuflect or do anything toward that baptismal font by the doors. But God is so loving, and He knows that we're dust, that He has given gifts to the church. And do you know what this helps us do? It helps us remember that Christ is the one who brings it all together. There's a body here that's given for us. Severity. Love. There's blood that was shed. Severity. Love. We fulfill the second commandment when we eat and drink Christ by faith and abide in His Word. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which He was betrayed, He took bread and He gave thanks. Let's do so. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Lamb of God, Lion of Judah, thank You for Your body and Your blood. Thank You. As we are seated in this room, You are seated at the right hand of Your and our Father. Thank You that You came and died and rose and ascended, that You're there for us. You hear us right now. You hear us right now. May we remember You with open hearts. We thank You in Your name. Amen. After He had given thanks, He took the bread.